Uh, we're continuing this uh, little series on the book of Romans, and uh, Tom started us last week looking at chapter 5, uh, and there was a, an awful lot in there, but one of the things Tom brought out for us was about uh, hope, and being people of hope in a world that seems uh, increasingly lacking in hope, and in some ways hopeless. Um, and this week we're looking at chapter 8, in some ways some might say that the pinnacle chapter of this book it's an incredibly deep, dense, rich chapter. Um, I know one church, uh, they looked at Romans chapter 8. They, they spent over a year going through Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to have a quick dip into it in one week. So we're just going to have a quick skim across the surface of this amazing uh, chapter. But I think it's a chapter that also speaks of hope. Uh, last week we talked about hope in this sense of in, in a world that seems uh, bleak. But today I think there's a real message of hope for when in our own lives things don't feel so good, when for us things seem a bit bleak and a sense of hope for us. So that's what uh, I hope uh, we're going to explore. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of this passage. And as we take just a little dip into it now, we ask that you would speak to us, you would refresh us and transform us into the people you long for us to be. Amen. Uh, if we could have the next uh, slide, please, Tom. E. Uh, New Year's resolutions. I don't know if you did make them a, a few weeks ago. Uh, if you did, and if you're still doing them, can I just say, by the way, you've won, because everyone else has given up. So if you're still doing it, uh, that's it. You've done it. You've won. You can now stop as well, because no one else is doing it. Okay. Um, I, I, this is true. I, a good friend of mine I was chatting to on the 2nd of January, and uh, I offered him a beer. He said, no, I'm doing dry January, uh, going for it this year. I said, great, well done. I saw him a week later. He had a pint in his hand. I said, what happened to dry January? He said, oh, it lasted until Wednesday. <laughs> um, but he is not alone. He is not alone. That, that's for many people, isn't it? We start off, oh, I'm going to transform myself, and we give up after a couple of weeks. But actually, I think New Year's resolutions, in some ways, they're a good thing, aren't they? Because they're essentially about people saying, I want to improve myself, I want to get a bit fitter, I want to get a bit healthier, I want to learn a new language, I want to do a degree in astrophysicists or whatever is he going to do, I want to improve myself and that's a good thing. Um, my concern with the way a lot of it goes though is I wonder how much of it actually is not just I want to improve myself but I want to be like everyone else. Everyone else seems to have a really good life and I think I want to resolve to become like them. And there's a lot of that around at the moment. We know that because of the way that social media is, a lot of people look at pictures of everyone else having a good time and feel a bit useless. Because people only tend to put pictures up of them having a good time and smiling on Facebook and Instagram and those things. And so we look and go, look at them. Look at their holiday. Look at their family. They're all smiling. They're not grumpy. Look at the lovely meals they have. And we feel a bit useless. Well, let's do something about it. Of course, what we forget is the people who post a picture on Tuesday of them having a happy, lovely time are all having a grumpy time and a row on Wednesday, but they don't put that picture up. But we can so often compare ourselves with others and think, their life's great and mine's a bit rubbish. And I think there's a real fear that as Christians we can do that too. We can look at other people and go, look how holy they are. They don't seem to ever get things wrong. I never see them sinning. They must be good, godly people, and I know that I get it wrong a lot. I wish I was as holy as them. I can't imagine the Pope doing anything wrong. He looks super holy. I bet the vicar never does anything wrong. No, they're all agreeing. Never does anything wrong. Um, I can't imagine it. 
But I know I do, and I think a lot of Christians live with that feeling of everyone else seems to get it right and I get it wrong. I may at this point, by the way, be preaching to myself. You may be going, nope, we know we get it all right. So, but I, I, I'm fairly certain a lot of us look on and go, I wish they were like, I wish I was like them. I don't seem to get it right as often as they do. And I think Paul really speaks into that feeling in this passage. Paul really speaks into that feeling of, I don't seem to get it right. I seem to get it wrong. And challenges and gives us a way out of that feeling of uselessness and that feeling of, why can't I be like everyone else? They seem to get it right the whole time. So Romans chapter 8 is, I say, this amazing book <coughs> that starts with this very famous verse that's been turned into endless posters, fridge magnets, posters, T-shirts, you name it. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an exciting, joyful message. Not entirely sure I know what it means just reading it like that, but it's one, there's no condemnation. What great news. But the thing is about this, and I think this is where the really good news comes in with this, is the first word there is therefore. So Paul, it's actually the middle of an argument. When Paul wrote the letter, he didn't put all the chapter numbers and things in. He just wrote a letter. People have added those in to help us break it apart and make sense of it. So this is actually the, the middle of an argument. He's basically saying, because of, what because of what I've just said, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So I think it's helpful to find out what he just said. So we're going to dip back into... Uh, Chapter 7, next little picture, please. Uh, and chapter 7 is also truly wonderful and also needs about a year's worth of sermons. So we could be here till bedtime. Because um, Paul in chapter 7 is talking about the law. He refers to it in chapter 8, doesn't he? He talks about the law. And the law, what he's talking about there, is all those commands and instructions that God gave the people of Israel. The Ten Commandments, other things in Leviticus and other places, the law that was given. And sometimes it's easy to read these and, and kind of think, well, that was a kind of a not very good law, and now we've got a good one in Jesus. Uh, that was a kind of the, the, the second-rate version. And Paul makes it very clear that is not what he's saying. He says the law is spiritual, the law was good. The law kind of showed people what was right and wrong. It gave this code of Here's right and wrong. Here's ethics. Here's a way to live. And what Paul says in chapter 7 is, the trouble is this law that was good and said, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, here's how you live well, sin corrupted it. And Paul uses an example. He says, the law says, do not covet, do not you know, desire what other people have got. He said, but when I learned not to cover and I knew that that was wrong, sin got in, and I started coveting everything. Once I knew it was wrong, I said, whoa. And, and sin corrupted the law. And Paul says, this law is good, but actually it, sin kind of corrupted it. And the law involved the kind of the constantly going back to the temple with kind of, uh, you, you took your pigeons and your, your grain and your sheep for sacrifices, and there was always forgiveness but it required this ongoing kind of, we have to go back again, we have to do another sacrifice. And it couldn't free people from this kind of life of living like that. And Paul then gets very personal at the end of chapter 7. And uh, if we could have the next slide, Tom. Now, the grammar here gets a little complicated, so just, just bear with me. 
Because Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 7, I was going to read a little bit, he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He gets quite down about himself here. He gets a bit, oh, I feel a bit rubbish. And this is Paul, this great theologian and spiritual leader. Now, bear with me, there's a lot of words do here. Follow, but bear with me. Here we go. He says this, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. Basically what he's saying is, I know what the law says is right, I know what to do, but I do the wrong thing anyway. I know I should do what I do, but I do what I hate to do. I don't do what I want to do, I do the other thing. Yeah? And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. And he goes on and on about this thing. I know what the right thing to do is, but I keep getting it wrong. My brain knows the right thing, he says later on. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there within me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me. He wrestles the whole time. Can you hear this wrestling? I know that I should be patient and kind and forgiving, but I get grumpy and angry and resentful. I know that I shouldn't cover and want what other people have got, but every time I see a, whatever you see, a chariot or something, I want it. I know that I shouldn't be jealous of other people's status and how good they are but I wish I'd been promoted. I know that I shouldn't be looking at those things or drinking that, but every so often, I get it wrong. And this is this great spiritual leader saying, I get it wrong. And it, and it really troubles him. He really struggles. He says, at the end of chapter 7, after all that, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's had enough. He says, oh, oh, I feel wretched. I keep getting it wrong. I don't know if you've ever had days when you feel like that. I know I've had plenty of them. I, I know what the right thing to do is. I know I shouldn't have lost the, my, the plot and lost my temper. I know I shouldn't have done those things, but bleh, I did. And Paul says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then has this lovely verse at the end of chapter 7. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then it goes on to remind himself again that he does the wrong, the wrong thing. And then says, therefore, therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Hello? We seem to have someone else joining in the sermon. I hope it's a good one. Um, don't worry. Um, can we have the next slide, Tom? He's saying, we've been rescued. Who can rescue me? Jesus has rescued us from this constant feeling of being a failure, from this law that was so good, and yet sin got in and corrupted it and made it a law that made people feel like there is no hope. And he says, but Jesus rescued us and through the cross as he explains in chapter 8 there where Jesus he talks about Jesus uh, taking on the 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 the, the spirit that taking on flesh and being a sacrifice for us the one ultimate sacrifice we no longer have to come to church with a pigeon and some grain for a sacrifice up the front here because Jesus has done it all for us 
He, the perfect one, took on human form, was the final ultimate sacrifice. And when we do our, have our communion, the words that we remember about that Jesus uh, told his disciples at the Last Supper, he says two things. I don't know if you ever spotted this. He talks about uh, eating the bread. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we remember his body broken for us, the sacrifice. But then when it comes to the cup, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. My blood of the new covenant, of this new promise, of this new way of being, of this new law that sets you free. Because by the Spirit, we live a new way. We are not bound to keep coming back with, with sacrifices. That's been done. We live a new way. And because of that, next slide please. There is no condemnation. God does not condemn us when we get things wrong. In John uh, chapter 3, verse 16, is a very famous verse. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him uh, uh, may not perish but have an everlasting life. And then it goes on to say, Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world. Jesus did not come for condemnation. God does not condemn. And it's not that it says, for there is now a little bit of condemnation, but when you get it wrong a lot of times, there is no condemnation. The Spirit has set us free completely from any law that might leave us feeling we, we, we can't get back unless we go and do this. We can always get back. And he goes on to talk about this life then being a life in the flesh and what that means for those who are in Christ Jesus because this is the, 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 the heart of what Paul's trying to say in Romans chapter 8. What does it mean? How does this work, this no condemnation? Because does it mean that this life in the, the Spirit, there's no condemnation because now, now that we're life in the Spirit, we, uh, we, we, we think about godly things as it says there, we've got our mind on God, therefore we're not going to get tempted anymore, so we're all going to live holy lives. Is that what it means, there's no condemnation? No, not at all. Does it mean, well actually we never get it wrong anymore, we never sin anymore because we're living life in the Spirit? No, it doesn't mean that either because we do get it wrong. It's why we had our confession at the start of the service, because we still get things wrong. It's not saying that you are free and life is now just all perfect, nothing's ever going to go wrong again, you'll never get it wrong again. So what does, what does it mean, this life in the flesh? If we could have the next uh, slide, please. And what, so he's talking about this life in the spirit. He's talking about this, this sense of us getting our lives in line with God. So those who live in the spirit, uh, in ver verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. This idea that our, when we live in the spirit, it's about this life where we are in line with God. When we become a Christian, when we give our lives to Christ, we are now in a new alignment with God. We are put right with God. We're able to live this way, filled by the Holy Spirit. But where our lives 
over time more and more line up with God. And it might be tempting to say, well, why doesn't God just kind of zap us the, the day we become a Christian and get it all sorted straight away? And I remember one time asking a vicar that and saying, why doesn't God just sort it out now? Because that'd be a lot easier. And he said to me, he said, the thing is, for God to change everything that needs changing, even if someone who's fairly decent and good like most of you are, all of you are, sorry, um, actually to change it all in one go would be quite an act of violence to change everything in one go. And what God does, he doesn't kind of disrupt in this really aggressive way, very often, hardly ever. He gently, carefully, lovingly remoulds reshapes us and life in the spirit is allowing God to do that remolding reshaping like a kind of a potter that's often used that image remolding a pot reworking it gently teasing and easing it into a new shape and that's what this life in the spirit is allowing God to do that to us and over time we do start to think God's ways we do, through the power of the Spirit, get our minds more and more in line with what God wants. And so it's important to keep on studying God's Word, to read the law, because the law was good. How does God want us to live? But knowing that we live it by the power of the Spirit, to worship together, to come together, to get our lives in line increasingly with God. It's a slow process, but God nurtures us and changes us slowly and carefully. So what happens, though, when tomorrow morning we lose our temper with the bad driver in front of us, or we scream and shout at someone at work, or whatever, we go into the gambling shop again because we can't resist it. So the next slide, please, because I think this is a little diagram. This is my own diagram. I've made this up. I hope it makes some sense. I think this is possibly what life in the spirit might mean. Because at the top there, we do get tempted. We will always get tempted throughout our lives. But life in the Spirit, first of all, we recognise it. We start to see what's right and wrong. Increasingly, we know how we should live. That life in the Spirit, as God awakens in us more and more, this is the way to live. This is how to be gracious to people. This is how to be welcoming, to be understanding. These are the things that we grow in. We recognise where the temptation is, but then, of course, the path divides, doesn't it? Because some days we resist. We are patient. We don't watch that programme. We don't drink that. We don't scream and shout. Whatever it is, we don't do it. We get it right. And there is no condemnation. And I want to say to you, on the days when you get it right, I hope you celebrate it. Because it's so much easier to beat ourselves up on the days we get it wrong. But if you get through a day and go, do you know what? I didn't lose my temper today. Rejoice in that and go, hey, God, we did it. If, you, it's, if it's just a morning you get through, rejoice at lunchtime. Because that's life in the spirit. Seeing God at work in us, rejoicing when we get it right, rejoicing when God's spirit is transforming us. So we're very good at beating ourselves up on the bad days, but rejoice on the good days. Hi there, good to see you. So those are the days when we get it right and we can rejoice. But then some days we get it wrong, don't we? We give in. Sometimes it's a spur of the moment thing. It just happens and we go, ah. Oh. Sometimes we try and resist and eventually we just give in because we just can't, we're just not strong enough some days. 
But life in the spirit, what happens? We feel guilty. We go, oh, I wish I hadn't done it. And that can be God's little prompting. And we go, oh, yeah, I knew what was right. I knew that that was it, and I got it wrong again. What do we do then as people in the spirit? Like we did this morning, we repent. We are always forgiven. And then there's the block. There is no condemnation. And I've deliberately not put in another arrow, going back to we are tempted again, as if it's a spiral, an endless circle. Because what God says quite clearly is that when we are forgiven, we are completely forgiven. There is no condemnation. Our sins are put away from us as far as the east is from the west. So when we start again, we start with a clean sheet. So when we go back to God, we, there is no condemnation because he's not going, ah, oh, you're here again, it's the 10,000th time. It's not cumulative. We always start again. We always start afresh. However many times we get it wrong on a particular thing or however many times in a day we mess up, when we come to God at that point of repentance, we are always forgiven. There is no condemnation. There is no adding up and going, ah, oh, I'll add that to the list of the other 50 things I've got to forgive you for, or the other times you did it. It stops. And that's life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit that recognizes temptation, that grows to be more like Christ. Life in the Spirit that recognizes when we get it wrong and owns up to it. That comes to God during the day, at night, on a Sunday morning, knowing that we will always be forgiven... And therefore, there is no condemnation. Because it's not that God's saying, ah, again. He says, ah, it's the first time, okay. You're forgiven. And that is this life in the Spirit that we have to offer, this hope that we live, not with this needing to beat ourselves up. Paul, at the end, towards here, he says, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Um, but Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Paul's saying that even though our bodies are still sinful, we live this way. So Paul, in that chapter 7, he says, what a wretched man I am, I feel so useless. Life in the Spirit means we don't have to say that. We are not wretched people, useless. We are God's people, struggling with temptation. But with life in the Spirit, there is never any condemnation. We don't have to go through that agony that Paul goes through in chapter 7. The Spirit releases us from that to say, I got it wrong, I'm going to try better, I'm going to say I'm sorry, and I know there's no condemnation. And it may be that some of these things we really struggle with and we say, do you know what, I need help. I saw a photo on uh, Facebook this week, someone had, it, had, a, had a mug that said, I love Jesus and I've got a therapist. It's okay to get help. It's okay in the struggle to go, do you know what? I need to see a counsellor. I need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to talk to someone else. That's okay. That is not saying God isn't sufficient. So if you think, do you know what? I need help, get help. And if that's a New Year's resolution, bless you, go for it. But even if we do all that, whatever happens... When we come to God in repentance, there is no condemnation. We no longer live like Paul was in chapter 7, saying, I am wretched. We live as people with this hope and joy. And I think as we live like that, that is a tremendous witness
to the world around us. This isn't, can I have our last slide, sorry. This is, I hope, a source of great joy and makes us want to leap up and down with excitement. It's not a free pass to go, oh, I'll just do what I like then because there's always forgiveness. Hey, uh, no, <laughs> that's not the point. That's not life in the spirit. That is what Paul says life in the flesh is. Life in the flesh is going, I don't bother even recognizing temptation or if I know it's temptation, I go, yeah, but whatever. That's life in the flesh, he's saying. Life in the spirit says I don't want to live that way. But life in the spirit is this freedom to know I'm not condemned either. I don't have to go around with this burden of guilt. I don't have to go around weighed down by thinking I get it wrong so many times. Weighed down because I don't feel as good as other people or as holy as other people. I don't have to be burdened because there's one thing I did once that seems so big that it defines me completely. No, it doesn't because there is no condemnation. We can live as these people free from that burden. And I think that freedom is something we have wonderful we have to share with everyone else. So many people, with all their New Year's resolutions, are doing that because they feel this burden. I keep getting it wrong. And what Paul says is when we turn to Christ, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we live this life in the Spirit, and there is never any condemnation. Amen.